0: The rest of you can turn to Galatians chapter four. It's in the New Testament, Galatians chapter four. All right, let me pray for the, the message and for the hearing. Father God, thank you that you have spoken your word to us. And although you spoke it a long time ago and uh, it was written into these pages that this word that you spoke still speaks to us today. And so, Lord, I I ask that you would speak to our hearts, speak, speak to us, change us through your word. And I ask that these words of my heart and this meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. What would it be like to have it all, to be uh, related or maybe even the child of someone who is rich, who is powerful, and who's famous? I'm sure you've all thought about this. What if you were born into maybe one of those celebrity families? What, What are the sort of gifts that you would receive for your birthday? Well, I actually looked up online and there's an article that kind of lists the 10 most spoiled celebrity children. Uh, and I know this interests everyone because it had 28 million hits for this short little article on the sort of gifts that these people uh, would give their children. And so I thought I would share some of this just fascinating information with you today. So, Beyonce and Jay Z, I know you expected to hear about them this morning. Uh, They're singers, they're very popular in the music industry, and their daughter, Blue Ivy Carter, that's her name, uh, for her very first birthday received a crystal bathtub and a $80,000 diamond-encrusted Barbie doll. Not bad. Jennifer Lopez, well, she has twins, and she got them diamond-encrusted rattles. So not a Barbie doll, but rattles for their first birthday, and if that wasn't good enough, she got them Shetland ponies, because we know that first-year-old know, year, year old babies want Shetland ponies. Mariah Carey uh, was married to Nick Cannon, and uh, for their twins, for their first birthday, well, they only got them diamond-studded diaper pins, um, so they really didn't get as much as everyone else. How about Sandra Bullock? Uh, she has an adopted son named Lewis. And for his first birthday, birthday, he got an Andy Warhol painting uh, priced at $14,000. These are some pretty amazing gifts. Or Surrey Cruise. For her seventh birthday, she got a two-story playhouse complete with water and electricity. Oh, that sounds fun. And to kind of top it all off, rapper Lil Wayne, I'm sure all of you have him on your iPods, He bought his daughter not one but two cars because we know that's what every 16-year-old needs for their birthday. She got a red BMW and a white Ferrari. Not bad. So this is what it's like to be the children of those that seem to have it all, that have all the wealth and all the power and all the fame of the world. And the Scripture says that we also are related to someone who is incredibly powerful, who is incredibly wealthy, who the Bible tells us all about is God, that we're adopted by God, that we are sons and daughters of the living God who owns everything. So my question today is, what does it mean to be an heir of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? How does it matter for me today That I am a son of God. How does that change my life? Right now, for eternity, do I get things like a diamond, uh, you know, studded diaper pens? Or is there something better that we get? There's something much better. and We're going to read about that in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We already read it through once, but God is honored when we read his word, so I'm actually going to read it again. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. So Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. So, what does it mean to have it all? Well, to really understand uh, what it means to be adopted uh, by God, to To receive our inheritance, we need to look at what it's like to live before we receive our inheritance. So to be heirs, but not to have come into the full blessing of God and to not have yet received Christ. So we're going to look at, uh, you know, how did Israel function before the promise of Christ? Well, before Christ came, before the gospel was really, really clear And see, this passage tells us that when you're not under Christ, you're actually under something called law. We were reading about it, praying about it earlier. You're under law. In other words, you're under a set of rules and regulations that you should follow in order to please God. So when you're not under grace, you're under a works-based system. And we're never good enough when we're under the law. See, the nation of Israel received the law through the prophet Moses, through God. Uh, Back in the book of Exodus, you see the Pentateuch, the law. And uh, God gave these commandments, the law, to Israel so that they would follow them. And and this law reflected God's character, who he is, that he's a holy God, that he's a uh, a righteous God. And so there were things that the nation of Israel needed to do in order to uh, follow that example, but then to obey God. Uh, to also be a holy and set-apart nation. And God gave the people of Israel the law in order that they would understand the difference between what is right, between what is wrong, so that they could understand what it means to truly follow God. And the scriptures say this is only for a time because there was something better coming, their inheritance. That's Jesus. But for a time they were given the law, to learn the difference between right and wrong. Now, the nation of Israel needed this, and and so we also need this because they were called children. Verse 1 says that they were children, that they were... uh, He is a child. Before the the message of Christ comes, we're all kind of this way where where we struggle between what is really true and what's not true. And so God gave the nation of Israel the law Now, a child is someone between the ages of one and ten, roughly, that that word in the Greek here, and it means simply that this person lacked understanding. It means they were easily fooled. And we see that the nation of Israel was easily fooled. Multiple, multiple times they were fooled by the nations around them who said, you know, come, worship our idols, worship our false gods, and the nation of Israel would go off and they'd, they'd be easily fooled, and they would do that sort of thing. But God said, no, this isn't the end plan. I'm not just going to let eternity span on uh, in order that one day you might actually fulfill the law in a, in the, in the, so that you can actually obey the law. See, the law has sort of a, a catch-22 to it because not only does the law help us discern what is right and what is wrong, but it also shows us that we can never be good enough, that we can never obey God in our own strength, in our own power, So, the law says, be better, but you can't be better. And that is Catch-22. Now, this term, uh, Catch-22, comes from a book. Maybe some of you have read it. I tried to read it when I was a teenager. I got through about half of it. Uh, And the whole plot of this book uh, is, it takes place during World War II, and and there's really no plot. Um, It just jumps around. uh, But the, the, the theme is that there are some pilots who who hate their job. They hate being bombers for the the army. And so they want to get out of their job as bombers. But unless you're wounded, you really can't get out. And so you have to prove that you're legally insane in order to get out of your job. But in order to prove that you're legally insane, you have to fill out some paperwork proving that you're sane. And this is called an unsolvable logic puzzle. The law is the same way in that it tells us you need to be better, that you need to be good, that you need to be holy, but you simply cannot because none of us will ever measure up to it. See, we're never good enough under the law. Under the law, we are slaves. We're failures. In fact, trying to be good enough is a mistake not only that religious people make, but it's also a mistake that the world makes. Verse 3 says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Well, what does this mean? So, the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying that, You Galatians, there there were teachers, there were religious teachers in the Galatians church who were were saying, you need to obey the law in order to be saved. Yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but really, you also need to kind of obey all these rules, all these regulations in order to please God. And the most insulting thing Paul could say to them was, well, that's as um, kind of dumb as the Gentiles And that's what he says right here in the Bible. He says, you're you're not being religious. You're you're believing in nonsense. You're believing in mysticism. You're believing in the the elementary principles of this world. That is the way that the Gentiles, the non-Greeks would do this. But See, we're followers of Christ. We believe in grace. Being good enough is the world's way. It's not just religion's way. So what are these elementary principles of the world? They're they're actually, kind of in Greek thought, they were the the things, the the materials that made up the world. And all of you have heard this before, but they were uh, water, or earth, wind, water, and fire. So maybe you've seen those symbols around. They're very popular in culture. Uh, In fact, in the 1990s, 1990 to 1996, there was a TV cartoon Maybe some of you remember this. It was called Captain Planet and the Planeteers. And I watched this like once or twice, but it was a pretty interesting show. Uh, So here's the concept of Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Uh, Humanity is destroying the Earth. And so the spirit Gaia, Mother Earth, so there's like this intro video, and she kind of twirls around and uh, is fed up with humanity. And so she chooses five special youth, and gives them five special rings to save the planet earth, wind, water, fire, and heart. And when these powers combine, when these like, five rings combine, it summons the spirit, Captain Planet, to save the day. And so there was kind of a moral to each lesson that you go and uh, you, uh, you know, you don't put too much water on the golf course when the desert around you is drying, you don't cut down the trees for the lumber force. that's not the right thing to do. Uh, and these were all, you know, good lessons, I believe in recycling, uh, but they were, uh, but they were saying that in order to please God, in order to, to please the planet, in order to please the spirit Gaia, you have to save the planet, And see, that is just a works-based system wrapped as a 1990s cartoon. And the Bible says, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you try to please God, if you're doing it in your own strength, you're going to fail. And see, we believe something incredibly different than the world. The world says, be better, God will be happy. Save the planet, Mother Earth will be happy. God says, I'm already happy with you. I have a different way of salvation. See, under law, under good works, we are slaves. If you don't believe in Christ, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but if you don't believe in Christ, you have to be good. And so those good works that you do are not about anyone else but you because you have to perform in order to be saved. And yet we who believe in Christ, well, we're already saved, and so those good things we do are an act of praise to our God, to our Savior. There's no way that you're not free unless you're under Christ. So under law, we are slaves, and so Christ came to change us. Christ came to deliver us. And this is really the inheritance of, Uh, that verse 2 is looking forward to see uh, the nation of israel knew that there was a redeemer that there was a promised seed we've talked about that in some of these past sermons they knew that someone was coming to save them the bible says it and so christ did come he came to save us from the law he came to save us from this system of works that i have to be good that i have to perform in order to be saved And so verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So how did Christ come to deliver us? How did He come to save us and to change us? Well, first Christ came to change our sentence. First Christ came to change our sentence. He was born under the law in other words, he, he, he fulfilled all those good commandments that we couldn't, that we could never do. He is the solution to the catch-22, to the unsolvable problem. Christ came in order to change our sentence, in order to extend forgiveness to us. See, through Christ, God can forgive us. That's what verse 5 is talking about. Verse 5 says that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. So what does this mean, to redeem? Well, it means to purchase, to buy back. So we were lost without Christ. We were lost under a system that said do better because we never could. And so Christ came, and through Christ spilling his blood on the cross, God purchased us back. And so we no longer need to feel guilt or shame for our sin because it's gone. Because on the tree, Christ took our curse. We have a new verdict, a new verdict of innocence. We are declared not guilty. So if you're living a life of, uh, of feeling shame and guilt and weighed down by the world, if you have Christ, you are declared not guilty. But if that's all god did if that's all god did was forgive us of our sins is kind of take away our sins that actually would not be enough and that's kind of an interesting to think about if all god did for you was forgive you of your sins that would not be enough if we were to set a condemned man free so to kind of pardon a condemned man he would still be a homeless man he would go from being outside of a jail with nothing to being, or inside a jail with nothing to being outside a jail with nothing. But what if we were to take that condemned man, he's been pardoned, he's innocent, and one of those celebrities adopted him. Well, he would have everything. He would have diamond-studded diaper pins. But he would have all the wealth. He would have everything. He would be able to survive, or she would. See, not only does Christ come to change our sentence to forgive us from guilty to innocent, Christ comes to change our relationship. See, not only does God forgive us, God adopts us. You and I, through Christ Jesus, have a transformed relationship. It's something that we don't think about often enough. But verse 6 says that we... Uh, might receive adoptions as sons. God sent his son in order that we might also become a son and a daughter of God. So not only are we judicially forgiven, but we're relationally just made over. We have a whole new family. Now in the ancient world, adoption... Uh, usually took place if the master of the house didn't have any heirs. So the master of the house could appoint a servant and adopt a servant, and that servant would, sh- uh, would receive the inheritance. But we know our Father in heaven does have a son, Christ Jesus. And there were other examples in the ancient world of, of parents who could adopt a child into their family. And that child would not get a lesser portion of the inheritance. That child would get just as much of the inheritance as any of the biological children. And see, God gives us adoption as well. We are welcomed into his family, and we also get to share in the inheritance of Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about what that means in just a little bit. Now, our verse says that they were adopted as sons. And maybe some of you ladies are out there saying, well, why not daughters? Why, are not, why aren't they adopt, wait, we adopted as sons and daughters? Well, there's just something special in the biblical language and just understanding that culture, that sons were the ones that received the inheritance. And it wasn't because the fathers didn't like the daughters, it was because uh, just the, the system of the property would go down through the sons. And they wanted to keep the property and really much of the possessions in the same family line, whereas if the daughters received it, you know, they would take it to some other family. The daughters did receive a dowry, uh, but that's a little different. And so, there's, it's special when the scripture says you're a son of God. You're a son of God. You're adopted as a son because you too are receiving the inheritance. Now, a couple more interesting facts about adoption and uh, Jesse and Allison Hornback told me about this one, but according to Roman Syrian law, uh, a man could adopt, uh, a man might be able to disown his biological son if he had good reason, but he could never disown his adopted son. So think about that for a moment. If you were adopted, according to the Romans, you could never be disowned. didn't matter how terrible you were, but if you're a biological child, man, better watch out because you could be disowned. And I think that's actually pretty true in the U.S. today, as far as I know, that it's harder to get rid of your adopted child than it is your biological child. See, God has adopted us and it is irrevocable. You can't lose your status as a son of God. You can't be disowned. That if God owns you, if if He's your father, He's your father, and that's never going to change. Our adoption as sons of God is permanent. That if the Holy Spirit resides in you, if you've put your faith in Christ, The Spirit of God has come and made his dwelling in you. There's nothing that can chase him out. I find that incredibly encouraging and incredibly comforting. Because I sin and I make mistakes, but none of those sins can ever chase my father away. In Greece, adoption also took place on the market square before the citizens and a tribunal. So adoption was a very public affair. It was done before everyone. I think that's pretty true of our adoption as well. I think it began at Calvary. I think our adoption really takes place in heaven. Before God's throne, there's nothing more public than God's throne where he says, these are my children. They are mine. Sometimes we forget to uh, act and live as if we've been adopted as children of God. I started by talking about some celebrities and there's actually one celebrity child, so, you know, he was born to parents that are very rich, famous, and powerful. Uh, and you would think that he would just have it all. Uh, instead of asking for, uh, you know, you, think, you would think on his birthday he would ask for, you know, cars or planes or whatever. But for his 14th birthday, he actually asked his parents for emancipation. <gasps> for his 14th birthday, he wanted to live in his own apartment. He wanted to be set free from his parents and their way of life. But of course, he still wanted their wealth and their status. Isn't this what we do sometimes? See, we live in a house that is God's house, and there is a very specific set of rules. My parents always had kind of rules for the house. And the rules for God's house is that you are loved, that you are adopted, and there is nothing you can do to lose my favor upon you. And we go and we try to live somewhere else. We say, no, God, I want to live in a house where I have to work really hard to please you. Let's come home. Come home to a grace-filled home. Come, live in our Father's house where we're completely forgiven, we're completely loved. We have the love of our Father. We have the reward of, uh, of what it means to be a son. And we long in our hearts to be a son of God, to be a child of God, to be royalty in some ways. See, under, slave, under, under law, we're slaves, but under Christ, we're actually kings because we're sons. Uh, culture longs for royalty. I think that's one of the reasons we're fascinated with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the royals in England, but we also sing about it. Uh, now, maybe some of uh, you in here have heard of Lord, uh, and one of the first songs I ever heard her sing was a song called Royals. She's from New Zealand, New Zealand, and it kind of has a, um, um, I don't know, I'm not a musician, clearly, uh, uh, a jazzy uh, soulful feel to it Uh, and she sings these words and we'll never be royals it don't run in our blood that kind of lux just ain't for us we crave a different kind of buzz let me be your ruler you can call me queen bee and baby I'll rule I'll rule I'll rule I'll rule let me live that fantasy See, we all want to be royalty. We want it to run in our blood. And if you are a child of God, it does. And it isn't the type of royalty that wants to lord it over others, that wants to be in a position of power, but that comes before the true king, before Christ, and says, wow, I'm so grateful that you're my Lord. And that somehow, in some weird way, in some beautiful way, I share what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a king. See, under law, we are slaves, but under Christ, we are kings. See, if we're adopted heirs like Christ, we're kings like Christ. And we don't rule as Christ rules. We don't rule at the right hand of the throne of God, but the Scripture does say well, we will join him in judging the angels. There's something so unique about our relationship with God. Notice that verse 6 says, You are sons, and because you are sons... Notice this doesn't say, one day you'll be a son when you die and go to heaven. It says, you are a son today. You are adopted today, right now. And so my question is, what are some of the benefits of being a son today? Because if that should matter for me right now, I want to see it. I want to know about it. Verses 6 and 7 tell us four benefits of being a son of God today. Verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, what are the four benefits of being a son of God, a child of God today? Well, first, we have the Spirit of the King. We have the Spirit of the King. Verse 6 says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Just think about that for a moment. We have the same Holy Spirit who lived and resided in Christ Jesus when he walked the earth living in us today. 2,000 years later, we have the same Holy Spirit. And we have the same Holy Spirit that is in Christ right now. That's amazing. This Holy Spirit helps us in very practical ways. This Holy Spirit helps us turn from sin. He makes us aware of the sin in our own life. He makes us aware of those places where we're disobeying God, where we're not pleasing God. He helps us make wise decisions. He helps us follow God. He helps us follow Christ through life. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. It also has the benefit, He has the benefit of making us more like Christ. See, when you have the same blood, when you have the same spirit of someone else and you're, maybe your you're family, you become more like your family. So like, uh, as I've gotten older, I've realized that I'm more and more like my dad. Now, uh, you know, some of the ways that I see that is I think like him, I talk like him, I'm sort of thoughtful like him. I'm also like my mom. Um, I have a beard like my father. Uh, I smile like my father. Uh, thankfully, I have more hair than my father. But as we get older we tend to look like our parents and as we age in this life this spiritual journey we become more and more like our father in heaven as seen through christ we become more and more like jesus because of the holy spirit dwelling in us i don't know about you but i want to be more and more like jesus every day so first one of the benefits of being a son of God, of being an heir, is that we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of the King residing in us. So first, we have a spirit, the Spirit of the King. And second, we have a relationship with the King. So we've already been talking about relationships. But I want to just dwell on uh, you know, the relationship that uh, because we're adopted, that, that we can, how we can interact with our Father, what that relationship looks like. So verse 6 says that we can cry, Abba father. Now, Abba uh, in Aramaic just means father. Some of you might have heard that it means daddy. That's actually not true. It just means father. It's just another way of saying father. But it's also, it's still a very intimate and connecting term. It's 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 a familial term. And we can use that same term when we pray to God. We can pray our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And notice that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that when we pray directly to God, we're not speaking about God, we're actually speaking to God. We're having a conversation with our Father. That's incredibly personal. Now, Paul is also referencing Mark 14, verse 36. And maybe some of you know that off the top of your head. I had to look it up. But in Mark Mark 14, 36, Jesus is in the garden and he cries out, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. And so Paul is referencing that verse right here. He's saying that you and I can pray the exact same way as Jesus Christ. That is amazing because Jesus, Jesus is God. And yet we can also have a similar relationship as Jesus had with the Father. We can pray directly to the Father, the source of everything, Abba, Father, Father. We can approach God just like Jesus. Timothy Keller makes this point in his uh, little commentary, Galatians, for you. He writes, Abba was a daringly familiar term to use to address the Lord Almighty. So when Paul says that we should use it, he is vividly asserting that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. You, can, you and I can approach God just like Jesus as if we were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. I don't know about you, but when I come before my Father, I usually come with guilt and shame and saying, Father, look at all the ways I have failed you. And Scripture says, no, you can come as a son, as one who has received the full inheritance, as one who can say, Abba, Father. Now, this is radically different than how the Jews would have addressed God. Uh, my, one of my seminary professors, I went to Gordon-Conwell up on the North Shore, and one of my seminary professors, Carol Kaminsky, uh, many of you have heard that name, she took a Hebrew reading class at Harvard. So she would, uh, you can take Harvard classes if you go through Gordon-Conwell. Uh, and she took a Hebrew reading class there, and there were several other Jewish people who took the class along with her because they wanted to continue to develop as they read Hebrew. and uh, and She said it was very interesting. They were very good at reading Hebrew. But whenever they would come to the name of God in the Old Testament, they would never say his name. So the Old Testament name of God is Yahweh. And that's kind of, you know, I am. That's that's how God refers to himself in the Old Testament. Um, And when they would come to that name, they would never say it. They would always say, you know, uh, the divine one, the amazing one, uh, the, the God who is. They would, they would come, up, come up with a, uh, just another term and the teacher would say, okay, okay, hurry up. Uh, but they never felt comfortable because they had such reverence for the name of God. And sometimes we miss out on that reverence, but sometimes that's okay because we're referring to God as our Abba, as our father. Not only does God allow us to use his name, he says, well, you can call me your father. wow. Look at all we have in Christ. We have so much. We're going beyond calling God by His name, by Yahweh, to saying, I'm your child. Let me speak to you in that way. So first, we have the spirit of the king. Second, we have a relationship with the king. And third, we have the record of the king. This is one of the benefits for you today of being a child of God. Verse 7 says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You are no longer a slave, but a son. Now, some of you may have heard about the great exchange. I actually talked about it earlier. The great exchange is this idea that Christ took all of your sin on the cross, and he gave you all of his righteousness in return. There's this exchange. I lose my sin because Christ paid for it, and I gain the record of Jesus. Jesus. And we have this record there is an exchange in verse 7 i was a slave i'm no longer a slave but i've also become a son this is the great exchange we lose our sinful status as slaves as those who always have to do better in order to receive the righteous status the holy status the innocent status of sons do you ever wonder Uh, what it's like to be the son of a king, or to be a prince, and to think, uh, you know, how would you feel about what others say about you? So, Prince Harry and Prince William, there were many things said about them. Do they actually care when people accuse them? Now, certainly they want to bring honor uh, to the throne. They want to be good representatives of the throne. But what about false accusations? I doubt they care much because they're kings. They have records as kings. And you and I have the record of the king. So when the devil comes against you and says, be filled with shame. What a lowly individual you are. Remember that you are a king, that you have the record of the king. Be gone. I'm royalty in Christ. I have his record. We have the record of the king and so we don't need to be shaken by the world when they see, say hard things against us, hurtful things, untrue things. So third, we have the record of the king. And fourth, we have the grace of the king. This is uh, the last benefit from this verse. Verse seven, notice how it ends. The last two words. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir, last two words, are through God. See, all the benefits we have of being a son are from God. We were adopted by God. We are adopted by God. Now, in in an adoption, I've never done it, uh, but who initiates the adoption? It's the parents. The parents are the ones that have to pay all the fees. The parents are the ones that have to travel, whether it's over the ocean or to, to a different city, to go and get their child. They're the ones who choose the child. They bring the child home. The parents initiate the adoption. And what did we learn about adoption earlier? Adoption is irrevocable. See, everything we have from God is just purely by God's grace. He's just given it to us. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. And you can't do anything about it. Under Christ, we are kings. Under law, we were slaves, but under Christ, we are kings. There are so many benefits. First, we have the spirit of the king. Second, we have a relationship with the king. Third, we have the record of the king. And fourth, we have the grace of the king. You and I have his love. Under Christ, we are kings. Kind of one final big application point from this passage But in verses 4 and 5, we talked about the Son, Christ Jesus. Notice that this passage is very Trinitarian. Uh, The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in this passage. Uh, But specifically, verses 4 through 5 are about Christ. And then verses 6 through 7 are about the Holy Spirit. And notice that in verses 4 through 5, we recall what Christ has done objectively for us. It's a legal standing. Christ has forgiven us of our sins. And then in verses 6 through 7, we recall what God does subjectively to us. That we can kind of have an emotional response to everything that God has done on our behalf. Tim Keller also writes, last quote from him, I promise, at least for this week. The work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or not. But this work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. The work of the Son is done externally to us and is something we can have without feeling. But the work of the Spirit is done internally to us and consists in us being completely moved emotionally as well as intellectually by the love of the Father." See, both the objective work of Christ and the subjective work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts are needed for us to truly worship God with our hearts, with our minds. Now, Myers-Briggs, he created a test where he divided people into thinkers, to feelers. And so uh, the thinkers were more of like the logical people that kind of like to map everything out. And the feelers, well, were more emotional We let things get to us. And the scripture challenges both of us because it says you need both. To worship God the way God intends, you need to both think about him and you need to feel, have feelings about God. So for you thinkers out there who love logic and uh, take pride in kind of being a rock, be challenged by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit as he softens you emotionally. That you worship God intellectually, yes, but also with your heart. For you feelers out there who, uh, who say, you know, we don't need to learn any of those biblical teachings, you know, we don't, who cares about the word doctrine, theology, that doesn't matter. Be challenged. Be challenged because when we think about, uh, the scripture calls us to remember what Christ has done objectively for us, to, to focus on Christ's work, because that's also a very important part to worshiping God. See, we experience the benefits of adoption both objectively in Christ for everything he's done for us and subjectively through the Holy Spirit as we're reminded of our adoption as we cry out, Abba, Father. Under law, we are slaves. Under Christ, we are kings. I want to close by remembering what it's like to be a child and to have some of the benefits of a father, to, to kind of uh, have the benefits of, uh, of someone who cares for us because this is a picture of our relationship with the father. Now, I never liked the dark when I was growing up. I'm sure many of you I can remember that stage of your life as well. And I would get scared. I'd get scared as I was laying in bed, and I would, I would see objects in my room that uh, just kind of appeared very scary to me. Uh, and then, so I would lie in my bed in the dark, and I would yell out for my dad. And it sounded kind of like this, dad, dad. And I'd keep doing that over and over and over again until my dad would come. And my brothers would tell me, be quiet, Jonathan, go to sleep, it's fine. That's, and I'd still yell, dad, dad. Maybe some of you are going through an experience right now where you're afraid. You're in the dark. And maybe you're afraid because you don't know God. So you hear all these things today and you're like, wow, that feels so foreign. I want to cry out. Well, you can cry out, Dad, Father, Abba, come and save me. You can be saved today. You can begin that relationship right now. Maybe some of you are afraid because you're anxious, because you're worried that your Father in heaven is displeased with you. So you're just familiar with guilt and shame. Well, cry out, Dad, Father, Abba. Maybe you're going through a life experience that you have absolutely no control over. Maybe it's your job, your marriage, your family. Cry out, my friend, Father, Dad. Your Heavenly Father hears you and He loves you. You are an adopted son. My father would come. I'd flip on the light and he'd say, what's the matter, Jonathan? He'd sit with me. He'd put his hand on my side and he'd tell me, that he loves me, and I'd be like, you know, my backpack, it's a monster. (laughs) Chase all my fears away. And he'd go back to bed, and I'd be able to fall asleep. And that is the picture of the relationship that we have with the Father, that he loves you. Maybe the light isn't on, but he's still present with you. He's praying for you. Christ is praying for you. Under law, we are slaves, but under Christ, we are kings. Let me pray for us. Father, help every one of us who knows you to remember that you are our Father, and that we have so many benefits today of how we go through this life, that we can go through it not anxious or worried, but depending on you and your grace. Because nothing can ever steal us from your hands. And Father, for those that are here that do not trust in Christ, would you give them the courage to cry out for their Father in the dark? In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for the benediction. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 3. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given you everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Be blessed, amen.